This is Macro Horizons, monthly episode eight, A Credibility Threat, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Karens, here with Ian Linging, John Hill, Ben Jeffrey, and Dan Creeder from our FIC Macro Strategy team to bring you our thoughts on Fed credibility regarding potential changes to the FOMC's monetary policy operating framework. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. So as the Fed continues their monetary policy strategies and the challenges that they face in achieving their dual mandate with rates near the effective lower bound as they are now, one of the biggest challenges that they certainly face is one of credibility. Specifically, can the Fed be credible about achieving their inflation mandate via the communication channel? In other words, messaging, makeup strategies, and things like that after a decade of missing the target, followed by 225 basis point rate increases, which naturally lowers inflation. Yeah, Margaret, to your point, I think it is a pivotal moment for monetary policy. And you bring up this implicit question about credibility. So there's a lot of debates around the amount of credibility that the Fed has. And I would argue that this debate has two very specific levels. On one side, it has to do with the political sphere and with Trump pushing back against Powell and advocating deeper rate cuts and the potential return to QE. On the flip side, there is this underlying more academic concern, which is not whether or not the Fed will deliver on what they promise, but rather if they deliver on what they promise, is it really going to do anything anyway? So from that perspective, the credibility of monetary policy to actually work becomes a very, very interesting question. And frankly, one of the major debates that it's going to be playing out over the course of the next few quarters. The Fed has already cut rates once. The market is pricing in another 70 basis points worth of easing by the end of the year. The Treasury market has appropriately repriced to a lower rate plateau. Interestingly, the curve hasn't really performed the way it has in traditional cycles. We would have, and had been, anticipating a re-steepening of the curve. But the fact that the curve has actually flattened to the point of inversion really implies that the market and investors are worried that the Fed is doing one of two things. One, they're not easing quickly enough, which is a classic policy error. Or the second, and this gets back to your point, Margaret, maybe investors simply don't think that monetary policy has credibility to spur inflation, at least not until something changes, whether that's a shift to a average inflation target or eventually QE at some point, really were the questions that came out of the minutes recently. In terms of how they'd actually implement this, it's really just a game of forward expectations that'll be done through guidance. 
So what something like an average inflation targeting regime would do is the Fed's just saying, hey, we're going to keep interest rates lower for longer. We're going to change the market's understanding of our reaction function such that if you see PCE hit 2.5, don't panic. We're not immediately hiking. We might even let it run hot for months or quarters at a time to make up what we had before. The reason this is so incredibly important is expectations of that process feed through into inflation expectations built into the curve. So this would push up five and 10-year break-evens, which frankly are absolutely abysmal right now. The current academic research suggests that low inflation begets low inflation expectations, which then begets low inflation. So it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling trap the Fed, through this forward guidance channel, is at least seriously considering trying to execute this updated guidance framework. Whether it'll be successful, it's hard to say, but it really is all about that credibility and what people think will happen in the future. So, John, the go-to assumption has always been an inflation target centered around 2%. You and I have had the debate several times, why 2%? The Fed is probably really unlikely to achieve 2% in a world of globalized inflation expectations. If we continue to have a reasonably strong dollar, we risk importing deflation for a sustainable period. Why wouldn't they just drop the target rate to something lower than 2%? So one, there's an element of moving the goalposts on that. Two, in the minutes, they actually discussed a version of that. It's kind of arbitrary to target 2.00%, right? I once heard a joke that two decimal points is proof that economists have a sense of humor. We don't even know if we can measure inflation correctly. So what about having a target range, something like 1.5 to 2.5%? The risk, of course, is then you get increased volatility in the inflation anchor. You get increased volatility in fixed income trying to make sense of what on earth does this one percentage point band mean. And frankly, you run the risk of looking like you're losing further credibility because you're basically moving the goalposts or at the bare minimum widening the goalposts when you're trying to kick a pretty long field goal. Well, the problem also is that lowering the inflation target doesn't solve the problem of achieving an inflation goal over the long run. And it also could diminish expectations about future inflation. If now the Fed says that they'd like to achieve lower inflation and that's their target, it could, to John's point, just become even more self-fulfilling on the downside. So 1% is just as arbitrary as 2%. The reason 2% was picked is because they believed it was far enough off of zero to be credible and to anchor expectations. Yeah, that's exactly right. When the Reserve Bank of New Zealand landed on 2% a few decades ago, it absolutely was arbitrary. And Margaret, you made the exact right point that if they go to 1%, that actually could create a self-fulfilling loop of lower inflation going forward. If anything, theoretically, again, this is academic, but theoretically, they should look at 3%, 5%, something like that. And the reason is that the next downturn if you have 5% inflation expectations, you can cut rates to zero and then have negative reals at, you know, call it negative 5%. If you do 1% inflation expectations and zero rates, that only pushes your reals to negative one. At the end of the day, the name of the game is pushing real rates lower to try to stimulate more economic activity. So, John, you mentioned that the name of the game is decreasing real interest rates, and they might have challenges doing that with messaging alone. So that implies 
other monetary policy tools that they need to employ if they go down this path. Well, I think you're right, Margaret, that this effectively means further QE, especially given how close to the zero bond we are already. And if you fast forward a few quarters and we're, we're at the zero bond, this means that we're going to be doing a lot of QE. The downside to QE, as we've seen both in the U.S. and in Europe, is that it blows up asset bubbles. So is financial stability a consideration for the Fed as they embark on inflation targeting? Do asset bubbles have to enter their consideration? And what's the trade-off there? It's interesting that you should mention financial conditions because, as John has pointed out several times in the past recently, if we look at what has been driving financial conditions tighter over the course of the last decade, the two big triggers have been a stronger dollar leading to tighter financial conditions and spikes in equity market volatility tightening financial conditions. And none of the conversation that the Fed is having around inflation or implicitly around growth directly address these issues. Now, to a large extent, they were never going to. Dan, I'd also say your point on asset bubbles reminds me of something Larry Summers argued a few years ago around his secular stagnation thesis. Basically, if you look back over the past 20, 30 years, the only moments where the Fed has been able to achieve 2% inflation or a little bit higher of some form were around asset price bubbles in particular around the dot-com bubble of the late 90s, 2000, or the housing bubble. So that leads to an even scarier follow-up question, which we don't necessarily have to answer here of, is the only way for current monetary policy to achieve 2% or higher inflation going forward through the introduction of asset price bubbles. And what if that asset price bubble is actually occurring in monetary policy in the bond market? Well, in theory, right, the lower borrowing costs should stimulate economic activity. It's all trying to push down real yields further and further. As long as you get inflation compensation built into the curve, you could have a world of 0% nominal tens, negative 2% reals, 2% break-evens, and 2% inflation expectations. Weird, but theoretically consistent with target inflation going forward. But it did not work to spark inflation during the last QE cycles. So the the implication is that it would have to be massively larger. When I think about it, the most obvious translation between lower rates or stimulative monetary policy and the biggest engine of growth in the U.S. and presumably inflation at some point is going to be the decline in mortgage rates that we have seen. Obviously, the housing market as a key store of value and contributor to the wealth effect. But look at the 100 basis point drop that we've seen in mortgage rates over the course of this year and the relatively benign follow through that we've actually seen in the housing market. Margaret, to your point, the notion that the Fed might be pushing against the string and can't really do anything with rates or even asset purchases unless we get to extremes might be the reality that's being faced right now. Yeah. I mean, I think John hit on a very interesting point earlier. I mean, monetary policy at its most basic acts upon people's expectations. If people think rates are going to be higher in the future, then they're incentivized to consume now. My concern, and I don't know if this is an issue we want to tackle here, is that monetary policy no longer follows that path of efficacy because expectations are that inflation is going to remain low and rates are going to remain low. So why consume now? 
or said differently, monetary policy pulls future demand into the present. Well, after a decade of QE and rates at the zero bound, the question has to be asked, has future demand been pulled into the now and there's just nothing left to pull into the future? What does it mean in a world where monetary policy just isn't as effective as it has been historically? I'd like to add to that before we tackle it. Part of the review or much of the review that the Fed is doing with regard to their monetary policy operating framework is because they themselves are worried about the potential ineffectiveness of monetary policy at the zero bound. This is the primary reason that they're trying to come up with these other strategies. So many of these strategies are focused on communication, which gets back to the credibility point. So what can they do? Can they be credible? I think there's also begs the question, are we turning into Japan, which arguably Europe has turned into Japan, and we see how that has played out. It has played out with much larger balance sheets. It's played out with effectively monetizing the deficit. And then that brings up a broader theoretical question, is it bad to monetize the deficit, especially if it ultimately ends up being inflationary? That hits on a correlated line of thinking, and this is something I struggle within my own head when thinking about the efficacy of quantitative easing. Had the Fed not done those series of QE programs, what would have been the economic outcome? So I guess your point about we're not Japan yet, well, is the only reason we averted some type of deflation over the past decade because of QE. So maybe QE pushed up inflation 1.5%, maybe it was zero. But it's kind of an ongoing question of just because we didn't achieve 2% doesn't mean it was a total failure. It just means it certainly wasn't as successful as anybody likes and frankly runs the risk of being less effective next time around. After all, 10s are already at 1.5%. Okay, you launch another QE program. How much further are you going to push them down? It's less impactful than when 10s were at 4, 5, 6%. So, John, I agree with you, but I think the bigger question that we're facing now is we're in a world right now where we've got two to two and a quarter for the target, 213 effective. If the Fed is thinking that they could perhaps do something with inflation here in a new monetary policy operating framework, what can they do outside of messaging? What actually can they do? Well, I think this correlates to lower rates for longer. For the Fed to be credible in their forward guidance, they need to actually walk the walk that they'll be talking the talk, so to speak. One thing that this would equate to is perhaps cutting more aggressively than they did in the 90s. Because you're closer to the zero lower bound, you actually need to be more aggressive in easing. Whether that translates to 50 basis points in September or something closer to 100, 125 in cumulative easing, even in a mid-cycle scenario, seems like that's the natural reaction. Of course, because all of this is forward-looking, all of this is communication, all of this is expectation, we're going to be watching break-evens extraordinarily closely to see, are they able to reset them close to 2%? Because if not, yeah, I think the risk is returning Japanese. And taking it back to just before the July FOMC meeting, if you remember William's speech that was interpreted as, oh, this means they're going by 50 basis points next week, our read on it was a little more nuanced and it was exactly John's point that when you are so close to the effective lower bound, more aggressive action is warranted more quickly. Now, again, that still leaves the question of 50 basis points in September, 25 basis points in September, what comes after that? 
But in factoring this into the equation on how they will be able to regain that credibility and ultimately get inflation back where they want it, one should skew the odds in favor of more aggressive action versus less aggressive action or a more mild form of QE or average inflation targeting, whatever new policy levers may be introduced over the coming quarters. Thank you, Ben. So the few people from the July meeting who supported a 50 basis point cut did so because they were worried about inflation. John, do you think others on the committee will be swayed at the next meeting to join the 50 basis point camp, given what's gone on in break-evens? Absolutely. People were concerned that break-evens on July 31st and 30th were so low that they're running the risk of this de-anchoring we've been talking about this whole time. We've plummeted 25 basis points from there. If nothing else, that is absolutely ringing a lot of alarm bells. And I would expect whoever those couple people were on the committee that were arguing for 50, not only are they going to be arguing for 50 once again, but they're probably going to have some other people with them. Certainly, this is not a unanimous decision. We've seen Rosengren in particular come out and pretty aggressively signal he'll once again dissent in favor of no change. But yes, if you just take break-evens at face value, it's saying... CPI is expected to be 1.5% on average over the next 10 years. CPI tends to run 30 bips above PCE. So that's saying the Fed's going to average 1.2% PCE over the next 10 years. Now, of course, you have to adjust for inflation risk premium and all that, but those are pretty ominous stats that the FOMC is looking at when deciding how much more accommodation they need to give. So I guess the huge question going into the September meeting is if they do cut 50 basis points, is it going to actually re-steepen the curve? Or is the expectations on inflation remaining low a reflection of structural headwinds facing inflation, global oversupply, overproduction in the global economy, challenging demographics? And are we going to be sitting here in September 50 basis points closer to the zero bound and still a flat to inverted curve? If the Fed does cut 50 basis points, which I'll argue is not consensus at this point, uh, clearly the knee-jerk response is going to be that the curve will steepen. Will that ignite the cyclical re-steepening that we have been looking for at this point in the cycle? That is much, much less certain. I could envision a situation in which they deliver 50 basis points, the twos, tens curve re-steepens out to call it 20, 25 basis points, and then we see this continued grab for duration, flattens the curve back from the extremes, and the Fed once again has themselves in this paradox where they need to continue to reach for an increasingly high dovish bar. And I would add another bullet point kind of in favor of the steepening of the curve, and that would be if we see a continuation of what seemed like a fairly in-depth discussion of average inflation targeting, as we've highlighted, that translates to lower for longer rates, which mechanically is going to weigh on front-end rates, while also at least introducing the possibility, if not the reality, of higher inflation, which is going to leave the long end of the treasury curve to underperform. And what's missing from this discussion is what's going on in the rest of the world. Look at the situation in Germany. They just issued a 30-year zero-coupon bond at a negative rate. 
We have obviously the situations that we have mentioned previously in Japan and what is at play there. There is some implicit cap for how far 10 and 30 year yields can back up to a large extent, regardless of what the Fed is doing at this moment, given the broader global growth and inflation environment that we're in. I almost think that that's an argument to think that the curve won't steepen. I mean, going into July, we would have all agreed if the Fed cuts rates, we should see re-steepening. It didn't happen. Now, maybe that's because the press conference afterwards, let's just say, didn't go great. But I think that there's the possibility that even a 50 basis point doesn't get you the cyclical re-steepening you're looking at. Maybe, sure, knee-jerk, we're a little steeper. But the rest of the world struggles. The end of the cycle here, I could see the, the curves remaining flat, continuing to move towards inversion on twos, tens, and the Fed running out of options. Well, to Powell's defense, I would argue that it was less that the press conference didn't go as well as it could have, but rather that Trump followed up the first rate cut with another round of tariffs on Chinese imports. That is the big uncertainty at the moment is how long does Trump keep up the trade war? And is there a moment of renewed global economic optimism that re-steepens the curve if and when we ever see any type of sustainable resolution on the trade front? I know that a lot of this conversation hasn't exactly been upbeat and optimistic, but to further darken the mood, if a 50 basis point cut from the Federal Reserve with unemployment near a 50-year low doesn't provide confidence to the global economy, and Dan, I think you're right, it might not, then it kind of suggests monetary policy is not positioned to solve whatever ails the global economy right now. I have a lot of personal skepticism that fiscal policy is going to step in and provide a massive pro-growth impulse. What exactly is left? And that brings us back to the broader themes of an aging global demographic. We have seen the most direct route toward increased potential GDP is through productivity enhancements that have been largely a function of technology. We've gone through a significant round of automation on the manufacturing sector, but on the service sector, we're just beginning to make the type of transitions which will do two things. One is be very good for the bottom line of corporations in terms of profitability, but at the same time, really risk displacing that lower end of the labor force, which are Arguably, this push away from globalization that we've seen over the course of the last four or five years is really reflecting. So the trade channel can be a significant channel for contagion. And so much of what is going to happen in the next couple of months does depend on whether or not the trade and currency war escalates. It's difficult at this point to see a de-escalation, but it's completely not off the table. To try to counter all of you know our, our negative sentiment here, that could be the one shining bright light out there that's obviously at this point a tail positive. But clearly, if that did turn around the other way, I guess the question is, are we too far into a negative feedback loop and potential contagion to ignite that virtuous cycle that the Fed is always looking to achieve? Well, we've certainly seen a material shift in expectations for how long this expansion is going to last, but something as pedestrian as a technical recession, a couple quarters of negative growth that really reset the clock, as it were, could be the type of event that really does lead the Fed to do more, other central banks to do more, and that in and of itself ignite 
animal spirits and shift the overall direction of the global economy. So said differently, we've repriced treasury yields to a lower rate plateau along with near-term expectations for the real economy. Hopefully there's a point in which that change ultimately yields a positive sentiment in terms of global growth. So we need to go through a little bit of pain here to achieve that basically. Yes, as is often the case in most rate and business cycles. Thanks, Ian. One of the things that was missing from the July minutes was a discussion of the potential for a standing Fed repo facility, which is something we had anticipated them discussing. This changes our view for some of the markets that we covered because it changes the timing of when they might implement a standing repo facility. Dan, can you tell us a little bit about how this impacts your markets? Sure. It obviously impacts swap spreads. Even just in the hour after the minutes came out, we saw swap spreads trading a basis point or more narrower. So obviously, we weren't the only ones expecting some discussion on the repo facility. And at this point, we have to change our base case, which was expecting a repo facility at the September meeting to now we're unlikely to get one in 2019. We can't eliminate the possibility entirely. There could be a surprise announcement in September. That's unlikely. Or there could be a November announcement, but I'd argue that a November announcement is too late for it to have any real effect for this year. So we have to now going forward anticipate no repo facility for the rest of 2019. So what does that mean? In the very near term, it means that there's going to be no solution to the overhang of treasury supply that's currently impacting the market. So very wide treasury OIS levels is likely here to stay. At the same time, we should expect swap and credit spreads to remain very narrow. Now, at first glance, the expectation might be to think that these three things will continue to trade this way until the repo facility or some other relief to treasury collateral comes. But I'd argue that's not going to be the case because as year-end draws close, we should start to see an impact on LIBOR that overwhelms the elevated repo rates and starts to send swap and credit spreads wider. And the reason for this is because we see in three of the past four years, LIBOR OIS moving significantly wider into the end of the year. The one exception was 2016, which we can really throw out as a result of the impact of money market reform. LIBOR OIS was already wide, so it didn't widen further. But in three of the past four years, we saw widening as banks look to lock up funding over year end. And what's interesting to note is that in each of the past three years, it's moved earlier and earlier. So in 2015, we saw LIBOR OIS widening really start to take hold in mid-November. Then in 2017, it was early November. And in 2018, last year, it was early to mid-October. And last year, LIBOR OIS maxed out at about 42.5 basis points. And the ingredients this year suggest that 42.5 might be a fair target, or it might even exceed that. LIBOR OIS may move higher than 42.5 basis points for three primary reasons. First, Treasury balances on dealer inventories have effectively doubled over the past year. So dealers already have to finance more over year end and are less equipped to handle further issuance, which brings us to the second reason. Our projections currently estimate over $500 billion in net Treasury bill and coupon supply between now and the end of the year. And finally, it's worth noting that Treasury's current cash balance is sitting at about $125 billion, which is effectively minimums over the past five years if we remove debt ceiling episodes. And as Treasury's cash balance increases to more normal operating levels in the neighborhood of $350 billion, reserves are taken out of the financial system, which exacerbates the problems we described before. 
The Treasury is aware of the impact their cash balance has on reserves and on the financial system, so they're going to increase their cash balance more gradually this time around. But no matter how slow they go, cash balance is coming up and reserves are coming out. So there's reason to think that LIBOR OES could go even higher than 42.5 basis points, dragging credit and swap spreads alongside. The key question is when. And I think early October is a good target for when we could see LIBOR OES widening really start to accelerate. Thanks, Dan. And thanks to the rest of our BMO FIC macro strategy team. Thanks also to all of our listeners. Please reach out to us with feedback and any ideas on topics you would like us to tackle. This concludes Macro Horizons Monthly Episode 8, A Credibility Threat. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.carens at bmo.com. You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 